I give both the founders a lot of credit. They were reading a lot of the Jason Lemkin stuff saying, you know, hire two reps at once. And we ended up hiring this woman named Becca, who was at optimizely similar enough space. And I was watching her. I was like, okay, yeah, this is actually how we're doing it. And we slowly pushed each other. Yeah, I closed the biggest deal, then she did, then we did. And it was this constant battle in a very friendly way. And her and I started really competing on, wait, how much value is really here? How much are people willing to pay for this thing? And in order to justify those bigger deals, that pushed us to also say, hey, what is the business value here? How can I actually get a CFO to care about this or some VP finance or whatever that may be? I think the competition led to that. And it was kind of us driving deals size up and then being forced to figure out the business value, which isn't the right way to go about it, but like that's kind of how it evolved. Being an early sales hire is a great test run for being a founder. Before today's guest, Todd Bustler co-founded Champify, he cut his teeth as the first sales hire at Heat. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Todd Bustler started his career as a sales engineer at SAP before joining Square as one of their first 10 AEs. From there, he joined Heap, a product analytics platform, as their first AE and go-to-market hire. In his six years at Heap, Todd rose to the position of VP of sales, where he helped the company grow from 300K to over 40 million in revenue. They also 10X their average contract from 5K to over 50K a year. After leaving Heap, Todd co-founded Champify, a tool that helps sales teams identify new opportunities by monitoring job changes. In today's episode, Todd and I talk about how internal sales competition led to Heap's growth, how their competitive messaging matured over time, how the sales landscape has changed since his time at Heap, and the biggest differences between being an early sales hire versus a founder. I hope you enjoyed today's chat. So I'd love to start today's conversation with your time at Heap. You joined Heap as the sixth employee and the first go-to-market hire. And at the time, Heap was around 300K in revenue. I'd love to know like, what made you join Heap and kind of who, who hired you? My entry into tech was as a sales engineer at a massive company. And then I went to Square and I was at Square for a year. And Square at the time, this going back like 2015, 2014, was like, you know, farmer's markets type of selling to it. And they were building that sales motion. And I was part of the first class at Square that went from like eight of us to about 60. And I started there really getting exposed to things like sales enablement, comp plans, territory models, rev ops, product specialists, and all this stuff kind of opened up my eyes to the point where I was like, oh, I really want to go to a true startup, not an you know, 800 person company just building out sales. I started to put some feelers out there and I got connected to the heap folks. I really like both the founders, you know, on paper, it's like first time founders, crowded space, like a lot of reasons why not to jump in, but I kept digging more and more. And I was like, all right, I'm by far the dumbest person going to be at this company. I'm going to learn a ton from all of these people and I'm going to see a company grow in some fashion. I remember telling my dad, like, hey, I'm going to go to this five, six person company. He's like, what are you doing? You know, you work Jack Dorsey, Square. And basically what I did, I called like the 10 smartest engineers I knew. A lot of them were at Square at the time. And I was like, what do you think about this tech? What do you think about this space? And a lot of people were really impressed. And a combination of that diligence and just liking the people. And they liked that I had some sales engine background and could be a little bit more technical. It was just like, all right, I'm young, I'm single, let's take a shot on this and ended up being a great decision. 
Yeah, there's a certain moment in your life, like in you know, in your in your twenties, where you're definitely down to kind of take those risks. And I, I felt the same with Lattice. I was like, "What's the worst that can happen? You know, I'm going to go. I'm going to learn with a bunch of smart people. Worst case scenario, I go get a you know a job back at Square, another big company, right? Like, you know, there's a certain moment in your life where that's totally worth it, and it definitely panned out for you, which we'll we'll get into today. Yeah, people are like, "Oh, you how do you know how to do the diligence? Like, you don't." You know, you're joining a company, you know, it's risky. There's definitely some luck involved. I think you can check some boxes, but it's pretty low risk and a lot of upside. You know, people like you, I think it has proved benefits for. And I'm curious, like, what was the state of sales like when you joined? I imagine there is a transition in happening, right? From just founder-led sales to more sales-led and you being involved. Can you take us back to what it was like at the time? Yeah. So not only were the two founders first time founders, one of them had never had like a corporate job and the other one had only worked at Facebook for a small amount of time. So like this was really like first time. When I came in, it was, they had a really good job getting into the hacker news, YC crowd developer community and had some good inbound, right? So like they had some interest. Most of the deals at the time were self-serve, swipe your credit card, $300 a month type of thing. And the founder had just done, I think, the first contract kind of sales-led deal. And it was really just like, hey, you're way outside the plan. How much are you willing to pay? I wouldn't call it sales. It was more kind of accepting, what do we do here? Um, And I remember them just being really open about like, show me all the customers. Show me what you're hearing. Let me listen to some calls. Let me shadow you for a day before I join. And I was like, okay, they really don't know how to do sales. And the thing is working, right? So I was like, all right, there's a lot here. But the current state was like one customer on a contract a lot of inbound, no sales force, no routing, like nothing in place at all. And they were just kind of like, here, go. So yeah, kind of thrown into it. Knowing what I know now, I still didn't do a lot of things right, but at least had the idea of like, where do I spend time? How do I extract value where people are getting it? And where did you spend time? Like, did you go buy Salesforce and set that up? Or did you jump on customer calls? Like, how did you think about kind of like those first, I guess, months you were... You were the, first, the first week was like, teach me how this works. Like, I remember sitting down and be like, honestly, how does the internet work? Like, what is this web tracking thing? What is a JavaScript snippet? Like, I had no idea. So it was a lot of YouTubing and getting my questions answered by these people who are really, really smart and knowledgeable of the space. Most of my time right away was like, wait, we have a lot of inbound. Let me go spend a time with all of these people, talk to as many of them as possible, figure out why they're buying. And I started to figure out really quickly, like who are the types of companies we should be spending time on? What are the signals that you can get pre-call or in a first call that understands where you should direct your resources? And it became very quickly knowledgeable that there's some of these inbound customers that can be paying a lot more and the value is clearly there and they weren't capturing nearly enough of it. So the first part was like, get an inbound spend my time with people I can pay money and understand why they were paying us. And then that allowed us to start to transition to like, okay, how do we go get some more of these bigger customers? Why do you think there was such great like inbound interest in Heap? I mean, beyond like being able to use Bookface and Hacker News and all that, like what do you think it was about kind of the products and positioning itself that resonated with folks? I think it's two things. I think they did a good job with the Bookface YC Hacker News community. And I think like a lot of people are really trying to figure that out today. And I think it's way harder in today's world. I think the second thing was they had a really acute pain that they solved. So if you flash back to this, it was like 2014, 2015, Mixpanel was raising tons of money, was like this new hot thing on the block. People were starting to be like, hey, can we do something outside Google Analytics? And then there was just the way of people that have tried some of the you know, 2.0 tools, if they've tried it, they've lived through this acute pain that Heap solved. And I remember like you talk to 10 people and six people would be like, why would I ever buy this thing? 
right? And there's two people that are like, yeah, I could see where this is going, but I don't need it now. But there was two out of every 10 that were like, wow, like, yes, I get exactly the pain you're willing to solve for and I'll pay for it. And then we just over time got smarter about spending time with those two out of 10. But it was really an acute pain they solved that was like a big differentiator in the market at the time. Those two out of 10 where they really felt that acute problem, like who were they? What was that like ideal customer profile that you sort of stumbled across? It's an interesting question because this category now has become known as product analytics, right? They sell to the VP of product. But if you remember that time, like product was nowhere near as mature as it was now. So like the people that were really latching onto this early on were engineers, people that were engineers getting bothered by product or leadership teams to understand what was happening on their site. They were going to implement a lot of this tracking code, which was something no one wanted to do, was looked at more as menial, janitorial type of work. And two out of those 10 were spending a lot of time. And they're like, wait, you can fix this for us in a pretty affordable way because they know what their time's worth. Yes, let's go figure this thing out. Now, the product was super early as well. Like, did it work? Could it deliver on those sites that like, you know, he's always had these upper bounds of, can we sell to this company yet? Good learnings there, as I think like a lot of early stage companies, but finding those two people very clearly fixing an immediate pain and people are willing to go spend money on it. And so it sounds like you really anchored the pitch against like an engineer's time. It's like, hey, engineer, you could go build this yourself and that's going to cost X amount of time or, hey, we can do it for you. And you just have to, you know, plug in a couple, you know, add this script, add a couple tags, things like that. And we'll, we'll get it going for you. Definitely. I think like now selling against pure time savings really challenging in this market. But at, at the time when it was such an acute pain and what we were charging was so little compared to a couple engineers time, the math made a lot of sense. I think as we really started to figure out, because when I started, we like, you know, I understand people were saving some time and the engineers didn't have to do X, Y, Z, but it wasn't until six, nine, 12 months in that we started to figure out like, okay, now that they're doing that, what does it mean for the business? And that's when we started way more selling to the business product and marketing people getting into what does a conversion rate increase mean to the business? What happens if you're able to save some retention, right? But in the beginning, it was definitely like tactical, fill the whole end time savings. Makes sense. And then like, I always think, you know, sub a million ARR is such an important, unique stage in a company, right? You're like trying to figure out product market fit, you know, you're kind of doing anything you can to get to a million where you can maybe go raise a series A in that, in that time from 300 K to a million, was it just this engineer sale that you were sort of doing and keep kind of mining that vein or did it start to evolve into like that more product persona? The first six months was definitely that acute pain. I think what happened next is they were reading a lot of the Jason Lemkin stuff saying, you know, hire two reps at once. And I, I give both the founders a lot of credit. First off, like that was still one of the hardest interviews I've ever done. I'll never forget the CEO asked me to pitch the product in a mock demo. I got done it. I thought it went pretty well, asked me how it went. And he gave me all this feedback and I was like, okay, that's good feedback. Yeah, I agree. And it was like, all right, we're doing it again on the spot. And I remember we did that. And I now always do this because I think it really shows if someone's coachable and can move on the fly. The second thing I give them credit for is I remember they were getting ready to hire a second rep before I had even started, or it was like my first or second week. And I said to them, I like this individual, but I think their background is so similar to me that I think you're better off hiring someone with a slightly different background to figure out what is this profile that's going to work. And we ended up hiring this woman named Becca, who was at optimizely similar enough space. And that's when I think we really started to get out of the pure kind of time-saving, just eng band-aid fix. And her and I started really competing on, wait, 
how much value is really here? How much are people willing to pay for this thing? And in order to justify those bigger deals, that pushed us to also say, hey, what is the business value here? How can I actually get a CFO to care about this or some VP of finance or whatever that may be? I think the competition led to that. Um, and it was kind of us driving deals uh, size up and then being forced to figure out the business value, which isn't the right way to go about it. But like, that's kind of how it evolved. Yeah. It's really cr- cool to hear like how much that Jason Lemkin advice, which I see all the time. And I very much agree with too, like to hear a real story about how it actually really helped keep in the early days and like forced you as a seller, right. To actually, to get, to get better <laughs> and to improve, improve your own, um, your own process. So yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting to hear. Yeah. And she was way better than me at the time. Like I remember cause she had like the most direct experience. Mine was very different and she had gone through a lot of that and I was watching her. I was like, okay, yeah, this is actually how we're doing it. And we slowly pushed each other. Yeah. You know, I closed the biggest deal than she did. Then we did. And it was this constant battle in a very friendly way. Um, that I think is, you know, the reason why people recommend that. Yeah. And we're finally getting to the stage too, even at, at doc where we just have like more revenue team collaboration, where we have a couple sellers, marketer, customer success. And it's so nice having ideas other than just the founder or the few small team, you know, 100%. people as a team, like it just makes everybody better forces sort of a certain level of excellence. And so I don't know, it's been very refreshing to have like a little team around me now at doc, which has been been awesome. It's been the same thing for us. Like we've, you know, pretty good sales background. I think you could attest to this now versus the early days of Lattice of how much needs to go in to win these deals or how much more competitive or hard to get people to spend. But we hired a new marketing leader a couple of months ago and the same thing, just the way they're thinking about business case and competitive differentiation and other kind of adjacent value props that we really weren't even talking to is just pushing everyone in the right direction. 100% agree. Yeah, it's crazy how much different it is today building a company than it felt back then. You know, whether it's, you know, the Zerpy times and just, you know, uh, you know, VC funding being flush, but also just where all these different businesses are at versus remote. It's just, it feels so, so different. Uh, yeah, definitely harder. <laughs> 100%. While you were at Heap, I think at around like a million and a half in revenue, you eventually sort of moved from, I guess, the first AE to kind of being put in this interim leadership role. Can you talk a little bit about this part of, of the heap story? For sure. So what happened was we had myself and Becca and we hired our first SDR who's turned in to be a great sales leader. And we were saying, okay, there's enough of us to go around. Like we really, on the inbound front, we got close rates up. We got our deal sizes up. Um, we need to start figuring out how to sell some of this outbound. They actually hired a VPS sales when it was just a handful of us. Pretty traditional. You know, we got to around a million. They've hired a VPS sales, raised the, the Series A. And I think what we noticed about six months after that individual joined is the caliber of people that he brought in and also the metrics both weren't heading in the right direction. And it was kind of like, hey, we didn't back to the Jason Lumpkin stuff. Like you should see this in a deal cycle that things are materially improving. And that wasn't happening. I remember we had a tough conversation back and I with the founders were like, hey, like we thought we'd be getting more from this. Like we just want this thing to work. What's the situation here? They were feeling the same way. They decided to part ways they kind of left this gap when we had, you know, a team of four or five salespeople, what do we do? And they said, all right, we're going to make you this interim leader. I was thrown into that way early, right? Like I knowing, looking back, I had no idea what I was doing. I think I had good intuition and trust to the team because I was in their shoes and that had some results and knew how to sell the product really well. I give the founders a lot of credit. They brought in a couple of different sales consultants. First off, learning, just interviewing them to do this role like this, people like Sam Blonde, Jim Haribold, CRO at Box. That's who we ended up working with. But just in those interviews, we were learning so much. And I was like, wow, 
I had no idea of all this stuff, operating cadences and comp plans and best ways to forecast and, you know, how you're thinking about campaigns. Like I was just never exposed to it. In doing that, you know, we partnered up with Jim Harbaugh who came in and that really taught us how, okay, this is how a sales organization is built. Here's how you go about it. And, you know, you could be the smartest person in the world, but if you haven't seen some of this stuff, while it's not rocket science, it's really hard to see around corners. And that was the person like, Hey, I get your idea. Here's why it's a problem you're going to run into in three months. So I partnered closely with him. He worked with us like two days a week and basically was able to level me up to get us to the next stage where they eventually hired a CRO. Very cool. And then were you like a player coach, like at the beginning of that interim period, or were you just full sales management? In the beginning, I was. In the beginning, it was player coach, which I'm not a fan of long-term. I think in these early stage companies, there may be transition periods where it happens. Looking back, we probably did that a little too long. And then I was able to move in the pure management role. And by that time, after you know another year or so growing really nicely, they brought in a CRO and it was like, okay, you now run this sales team. And I was super happy to have a boss at that point too, because I was kind of running into like, I'm not sure what to do territory or kind of flying from the hip. But yeah, it moved out of that player coach role pretty quickly. What was it like being, you know, you were a peer of these other sales reps and then you kind of go to being the leader and, you know, effectively their boss. What was that like? That must have been a little awkward or hard to build trust or I don't know, or, or did it just feel more, more natural? How did that kind of go down? It, it really, it really was. And I think that's something a lot of early stage folks go through. It's like, you know, you know how this is. You're working really close with these people. You hang out socially, you become friends. There are many of them are great friends today. And then all of a sudden I'm having to have hard feedback conversations. It's not easy. Like I remember being in the situation of like, you know what? I really shouldn't be at these happy hours. Or I actually shouldn't be going out with this team at this stage. And it, it is a little challenging. I think I had the respect because I'd just done that role well, and I could immediately help them be better at their jobs. But yeah, it was definitely a tricky component going from friends to manager. And I don't think that's easy for anyone, but realistically, it's a skill that you have to get good at um, because I think it happens to more people than some people might think. So I'd love to transition and talk a little bit more about like the sales motion and just the competitive landscape at Heap. You know, Heap eventually operated in this very competitive market of product analytics. And I think the big players were like Mixpanel and Amplitude. I don't know if that's right, but yeah, yeah who did you usually right. sell against? And then like, how did, uh, yeah, how were you able to win? There's a lot of really interesting learnings here too. After Heap, I spent a year in, in the venture world and worked really closely with some early Amplitude folks and learned about kind of that playbook from the sideline. But super early days, it was basically, how do we get in the deals that Mixpanel are, is in? And then we had a really fundamental differentiator and could win a big chunk of them. Um, Amplitude came on the market really similar timing. And I think Amplitude was some, was really impressive from positioning and product marketing from day one. Like They very much were like, we're going to be the tool for product managers. We're going to beat on that drum nonstop. And then from a positioning standpoint, like Amplitude and came in as like a cheaper, faster version of Mixpanel. And then slowly they've been able to move to kind of the premium product in the market. I think what was interesting about Heap is, again, going back to that differentiators, it was just very clear to say, philosophically, do you believe that event tracking should be automatic? If so, you would want to work with Heap. Now, there may be some features we weren't quite there on, but competitively it was saying, hey, you know, the last 20% of complex analytic features doesn't matter as much of getting this right. And I think the people that have lived through any bit of that pain were willing to uh, get on board with us. There was another player in the space called Pendo, which was getting off at the same time as well, that made things complicated because they were saying, hey, 
We might not have the most sophisticated analytics, but we're including all of these other things in a suite that product people may care about. And that was really tricky to sell against. And I think what we did is we had some partnership motions that we were probably too late to get to, but that allowed us to compete on that front. But it was definitely a competitive market. All those vendors getting a lot of money, all of us chasing for a pie that probably felt like was smaller than all of the VCs wanted it to be at the time. Um, But I think a lot of really good reps have come out of all of those companies because they're highly competitive deals. In the beginning, you know, there wasn't tons of differentiation and you just had to, you know, build champions, build business case, figure out how you're going to do this, use references, all of the things that I think have made people good sellers years later. Yeah, it's super interesting. It sounds like the whole market, okay, realize there's this whole space to build things for the product team and the product analytics, shifting it from engineers. And then there was just, you know, a bunch of companies who sort of realized that and started to build in that direction. You touched on it a little bit at the end of your answer, but I'd love to go a little bit deeper. Was there anything like in your approach of how you sold the product, not just like what you sold that made you different? You know, not just going through the different features and saying, hey, our features are better X, Y, and Z, but like in sort of your salesmanship approach and how you went to market, was there anything that stood out from Heap? I think there's two things. The first thing, like, again, because we had that philosophical differentiator, you could understand if people are on board and leaning into that or not in the beginning. And if they weren't, we, we got good at not chasing those deals. I think the second thing is we had a trial and we used that heavily to our advantage right? Like we talked about how you can get up and running faster, how the chance of implementation is a lot higher. And then we were able to prove that. So like we had some really good technical resources that said, Hey, Alex, drop this JS snippet on your app or on your site. We're going to come back. And when we meet in five days, we're going to have all pre-built reports. We're going to actually do some analysis on your behalf. So our best conversations, I think there's a lot of similarities to this today at Champify. You really weren't talking about the product. You were talking about, here's what I'm seeing in your app. Here's the types of decisions you can make. And in doing that, they're like, wait, this is already set up. Like we're 90% of the way there. And I think that really started to say like, okay, maybe I don't need some of these other things that some other vendors have. You know, looking back, like, you know, it was a really big differentiator we had. And I think we leaned into it pretty well. Yeah, you're just able to like get get to value faster, accelerate For the time sure. to value, and and as opposed to doing like, oh, here's your slide deck on theory how it's exactly. going to work. Here's how it's actually going to work. Yeah, I remember being in these demos, and you know they weren't demos; they were really like you know trial setups or let's go through an analysis. And we had different versions of this over the years. A preferred customer program, we're go and build this out. We'd say like, forget the product, forget the analytics tool. What are the ten things you guys care about right now? Like, what are you thinking about as a business? And if we got installed properly and let a, a couple of weeks of data get captured, we could come in there and be like, here's what we're seeing for your conversion rate. Here's some differences in what you're seeing on retention. Hey, you're building that feature you just had three engineers spend a month on. No one's even using it. You have a discoverability issue. So you started to act as this consultant, which was a good thing on the sales process. On the ramping sales side, like AE side, you really needed smart reps that could think like that. Right. And be able to say, like, what do these people care about? How do they make money? How do I guide our technical resources? Or in the beginning, we were doing it on our own. How do you guide yourself or others to be able to build the the right analysis that's going to get them to realize, okay, this is the right decision. And I know while you were at Heap, you kind of grew the average contract size quite significantly. It went from like 5K to over 50K. How were you able to do that? Was it a lot of this like anchoring to the business outcomes? And what were sort of those levers you pulled? Did you just increase prices? Like how were you able to, you know, kind of move up market there? I guess three or four things. Like many companies, I don't think we were charging enough in the beginning. So it's easy to be like, oh, the sales was so smart, but it was just like, wait, we could be charging a lot more for this. Like there's a lot more value for this. And I think most founders are uncomfortable raising their prices and it's someone every everyone kind of goes through. 
I think I put some good pressure to be like, listen, I, I know people will pay more for this. Let's slowly keep testing that and pushing it. I think the second thing was the competition with Becca. Like it just spurred like, hey, you know what? I think I can get more here and I, I'm confident it's worth it. We can deliver. I think we were also seeing some more wins from our customers that gave us more confidence. Like, wait, you know, we're working with a big insurance company. They increased their conversion rate by, you know, eight tenths of a percent. You know how much money that means for them? Like, hold on, there's something real here. And then we started to add some other products as well. Like at the time, everyone was starting to want their data in a data warehouse and Amazon Redshift was the hottest thing. And I remember the first time the CEO said, hey, we just built this. I want you to sell it as an add-on. And I said, okay, how much? Like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, go figure it out. And I was like, okay, here we go. So get on a call, you know, push way too high, understand that there's kind of a range people are willing to pay. All three of those things kind of helped us slowly inch it up. Were there any memorable deal stories like on the enterprise side from this time at Heath where you're like, oh God, I can't believe we closed that one or anything that stood out? There was a couple different use cases for the product. There was like this get on a site where people have high value conversion, lending site, insurance companies, et cetera, doing a lot of testing and optimization, right? Constantly looking at that web page experience as a product. There was also an internal tooling use case. So huge companies that might have hundreds of internal productivity apps and had a lot of engineers dedicated to that. I remember we, with a big consulting company, we had, you know, started with like a 2K swipe your credit card deal, eventually got them to like 25K and they wanted to go bigger. And I'll I'll never forget this. We prepped for it. Founders on the other end of, you know, on the back of my monitor. And we were going to be like, all right, we're going to quote these people $600,000. And in our head, we're like, well, there's this many engineers. Here's how much you can sell. And I, we got laughed at, like purely laughed at, like, whoa, 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 what? Like, I was expecting you to say 30,000. How did we get here? Like, this is not happening. I felt dumb, but actually, I think there's some good learnings in that. Like, maybe it's having some of the courage to push the envelope and really figure out where that is. I think there's also some learnings of, hey, you better get really clearer on how you're articulating that value. I am proud to say that one of their biggest competitors actually ended up becoming a 750K deal three, four years later. So it was there. I think we were a little early in how we articulated that value or how other people have personally experienced that value. But I remember having all the confidence in the world going into this, like, all right, we're going to do this, like pumping myself up and, and literally getting laughed at. But I actually, looking back, I don't think we were wrong. I think we we're just a little early. I love that story. I mean, in all of us in the early stage, just, you know, criminally underpriced our products. I've done it at Doc and we're increasing, you know, our prices and different things. So you just don't have the confidence that, you know, in the product in the early days, you know, everything that's wrong with it. But then as you start to mature and it gets good and you start to see the real impact on the business and you start to kind of build confidence and like you do got to increase your prices because you're, you're having a real impact on the, on the business. So I don't know. I give, give you credit. I don't, I don't have the balls to, to quote a 600K <laughs> deal yet, but one day, one day. <laughs> yeah, I, I went in there guns blazing. You know, I'll never forget. It was like crickets. Like the guy was literally laughing at us. But again, I do think some of that is necessary. Maybe we went a little too crazy, but I don't think we we're far off. Switching gears a little bit, you eventually went to start the New York City office for Heap. Why'd you make that move? Was that like a personal move? And then what was that experience like kind of building up a, a satellite office? So uh, we had a CRO that was ramping. And I, I think there was an interesting anecdote there as well for some early stage employees, early stage salespeople is, you know, we didn't have the best experience with that first VP of sales. I really liked the individual. I just don't think he was at the position in his career to get what we wanted from that. And then when the CRO came in, I remember sitting down, I said, all right, I need to do everything in my power to make this individual successful. And I, I remember saying, here's what matters. Here's the real problems, whatever you're hearing from the founders. Here's my view of the real problems. 
here's the reasons why the first individual didn't work out and basically give them a playbook to say, go make this thing work. He had a really good experience. We started growing really quickly. I, at the time, was living in San Francisco four or five years, and I was kind of ready to move back east. I'm from New Jersey. My parents were getting older, and we had a lot of customers there. So when I started to bring that idea up, they're like, hey, this this makes a lot of sense. And it was it was awesome because you got to create a little bit of a subculture right within a company, and it was a lot more sales-driven than eng-driven. I think with two technical founders, we were a very eng-driven company that they respected and liked sales, but it was nowhere near a sales-driven company where you know, sales kind of makes a lot of the decisions, calls the shots. That started to change a little bit because we hired some really good talent early on there that started to push the deal sizes even bigger, that got a team and on the East Coast, you know, significantly higher. We were getting in front of way more customers. We were having events at our office. So I think it's just the the takeaways where you can build a subculture. If you have a really heavy eng culture at a company, you have a chance with a satellite branch or campus to kind of create a different experience there. And it also created some awesome competition. Becca started moving up the ranks on the West Coast. I was on the East Coast. And now it's this similar competition, but at a manager and team level, which again, I think is very healthy. You ended up running, I think, a team of like 25 plus sales rep. How did your management style evolve? And how did you even learn? I mean, were you still using like a gym as a coach? And I don't know, like, how did you even figure out how to run such a big sales org? Yeah, I was thrown into the fire. Like, I think there was a couple key moments that I think your learning as a manager comes in step functions. It's not linear. And, you know, Jim Haribol was the first one. Well, the interviews for the consultant was the first one. Jim Haribol was the second one. Learning from our CRO was the third. And then we actually went and invested in frontline sales management coaching. A guy named Matt Cameron, he runs this program called Sassy. I went to that and I remember being mind blown as well. And just like, oh, operating rigor. Like, here's how you interview. Here's how you run one-on-ones. Here's like what a good sales meeting should look like. Here's the frameworks and, you know, what do they need to learn? What do they need to feel? What do they need to do? Like learning all of these things. I think me personally was smart person at Heap, had early good results. And then just, I never was too confident to say I know everything. So I looked at every opportunity to just learn from good people and try to make that into my own style. Again, I don't think any of the sales leadership stuff is rocket science for people with high EQ and good natural leadership abilities, but you have to learn it, right? Like there's just, it's it's hard to see it unless you've seen it done well. Yeah, there's such a just like core playbook to sales and how do you run a sales org and sort of that cadence of driving revenue that like, if you've never experienced sales, you just don't know what it means. You think it's just like pulling a fast one over uh, over a buyer, but there's so much more to that. It's such a numbers game, which I think is, is pretty mind blowing to people who are outside of uh, the industry. And building a culture of accountability and winning and constant learning. Like I, I'm really proud of the culture that we build at sales uh, at Heath because tactical things like how do you get everyone to do pipe gen consistently? Like we were good at that from very early on, like a very pipe gen focused sales culture that when everyone else was saying, Oh, only SDRs prospect, like everyone prospected, we built that having things like deals lost channels. So we're always learning from deals that didn't happen. What could they have done different? What needed to happen on the product side? But yeah, it's like I said, it's hard to think about how you set all of that up until you've seen it done well. All right. I want to talk about what you're up to today. So now you're the CEO and co-founder of a company called Champify. Can you talk a little bit about like what was the original idea for Champify and how did you come up with it? And then, you know, how has that sort of evolved and what is it today? 
original idea was essentially, I mentioned Amplitude kind of being really good at product marketing and positioning and thought leadership. And I think he never figured that out, especially not in the early days. There was a lot of zigging and zagging on exactly what market should we target? Who's the end buyer, right? I think what we saw was two things. We started to see some of that outbound motion stalling out. And I think it was driven by two different things happening in the market. The first thing was just, you know, there was a lot of funding going into this space. And I don't know if the market was growing at the same rate. So like just going to talk to new people is tricky. You know, where we got really good at hiring SDRs early days and making them productive, we were seeing that efficiency go down. I think we had captured a lot of the early adopters as well. I think the second thing was happening is you were seeing sales engagement platforms blow up. Like, whereas in the early days, we were really nerdy with outreach and Zoom Info and Clearbit. That was an advantage. Like you had some arbitrage there. Fast forward three, four years later and everyone was doing it, right? So I think what we started to realize is there was a rep on the West Coast that had come from Samsara, really sharp ops-focused rep that was blowing out his number consistently. And I started spending more time with him. What I realized, he's like, you guys are asking us to go after people that have never heard of us. The chance of that happening is really, really low. Yet we could fill U.S. football stadium with the amount of people using our product that have had great experiences. And, you know, he was working extremely long hours doing a lot of this manually, but it was kind of wild, wild west. You could own a lot of accounts, right? The hungriest person was winning. And he said, these people are turning over at 2 3% a month, many of which are going into great accounts. I'm just spending all my time there. So the idea of Champify was happened in that moment. We kind of built a bad version of it. And then it became more clear into my head that we need to go after this when I went and after heap, I spent a year as an operator in residence. And basically what that would be, Alex, is let's say you're a nerdy engineer, never started a company. We just led you around. I would partner with you as the me as the operator in residence, you as the founder. And I would literally have an email at your company and be a, your right-hand man. And what that meant is, you know, for companies that are a little bit further along, that may be, hey, we're hiring our first rep or our first comp plan, but a lot of it was super early. How do we get design partners? How do we price our first deals? What is the value? Who do we go after? And when I started doing that with founders, I was like, wow, doing this in 2021 versus 2015 is dramatically different and dramatically harder. And I thought I could use the same tools that I did in the past. Maybe there's some new tech, but same playbook and just wasn't working. So a combination of me seeing that trend happen led me to believe like, okay, there's something here with Champify. So I went and had 30 conversations with people. I ended up partnering up with that smart rep. And we said, hey, if we can get a good CTO, like we should go after this. And we started to show people, they're like, if you do this and you have this team, we'll put money in. Another signal being like, okay, there's something here. You're a couple of years into the journey. Like, can you talk a little bit about kind of the timeline and the company growth? Did you launch with like a pilot beta program? And then when did you sort of transition into like actually selling the product? Like what have like kind of the last couple of years looked like for you? Yeah. So uh, co-founder Steven was working on this for about four or five months before I decided to join him. He was trying to say, Hey, we should do this for a while. Originally he was going to invest and advise. And I started like not being able to sleep at night being like, wait, I need to do this. We raised money in June of 2022. We launched in August 2022. And we opted for selling the product very early. I had saw a lot of founders in the Unusual Ventures portfolio kind of build all of this product and then not really know if there was a market for it yet. So we opted for selling it really early. But we launched, we have either zero or one paying customer. 
probably very similar to you. You know, a lot of friendlies, people you know that were willing to try this out, weren't spending a ton of money. We just spent a ton of time with them. How should this work? What should the workflows look like? Um, what's the value we're driving here? Um, and then now you fast forward from that August launch to November 2023, and you know, we have north of 55 customers. We have a, a, a sales team that's constantly getting into pipeline and closing deals at a repeatable clip, but it's hard. Like I think the getting into pipeline early heap days versus companies launching today is just a whole different ball game. And like, you know, when you take away some of this kind of scale, not that sophisticated outbound from the table, it's really hard to get into the level of deals you need to early on. And like, how did you approach founder-led sales? You know, I imagine as a former seller yourself, you're probably pretty good at this. Like, how did you sort of think about that problem and going back from, okay, being a VP back to the front lines and actually working the deals yourself? I never got that far away from it at Heat. Maybe this was a good or bad thing, but I was still, I think just because of my tenure there, I was still in tons of deal reviews or brought into tons of meetings just because I had, you know, all the anecdotes and all the stories and all the relationships. So I don't think I was ever far away from the selling. I think the bigger thing we realized is like, hey, if we can get into meetings and conversations, we can close deals. We know that this is a very uh, a product that's powerful and pretty easy to articulate the value. I think where I spent more time was how do we figure out how to get to meetings? Like, I remember talking to you. I said, hey, how do we launch? Like, How do we go and get people to want to sign up for this? What's the best way to go about this? Because I knew if we can get into meetings, we knew how to run a pretty good sales process. But I would say I spent more of the time trying to figure out how do we get awareness? How do we get people to know who we are? How do we get people to want to even entertain chatting with us? And then the sales didn't change all that much. And then you're selling a tool that helps with outbound sales. I imagined you were doing a lot of that. But I'm curious, like, what advice do you have for sales leaders who are dealing with outbound today? And you know, how does Champify sort of help them supercharge that motion? For sure. It's, it's really interesting because... You know, we're heavy power users of our own product, but we're not the ideal fit of our own product just yet, right? Like we normally don't start selling to companies until they're, you know, 100, 150 employees. When you have a critical mass of users that it really starts to make sense to operationalize. I think it depends on who I'm talking to. Like early stage companies, I think the biggest thing you need to figure out is like, they look at this and like, how do I get to a million dollars in ARR? And I always say, break this down in chunks. Like you have friendlies, you have people in your network that will try this out. If you can prove value, you can get people to pay for this. You know this, once you get your first 5, 10, 20 customers, the next ones get a little bit easier. So I think it can look daunting as an early stage founder to say, how do I do this whole thing? These numbers look really big, but step by step, it gets easier. The thing on the bigger company standpoint is the world is changing really quickly, right? Like you can't, use the sales engagement platforms and just buy cold data lists and expect that thing's going to work. I think the companies that are doing it really well are, are like you guys, right? We're like, you have tons of thought leadership. You have tons of people talking about different use cases they can use. You have tons of influencers talking about what you're doing. Like, I think that stuff matters more than ever. And then for people that are more mature, if email, cold email is a huge part of your pipeline, you know, a big source of pipeline today, like there's big changes coming, right? And I think like bigger than a lot of things in the last couple of years and the companies that can react really quickly to that, I think are going to be a lot of the winners. Yeah, it's super interesting what's happening in just the outbound world. I mean, I don't know, this week on LinkedIn, I don't know when this episode exactly. will air, but it like blew up right now. We sent that email about uh, like the 5,000 email limit or whatever. And like, you know, you can see all of LinkedIn freaking out and it's like, 
seems to like, you know, a long time coming, you know, we all get spammed with so many emails and it's like, we got to optimize for healthy growth as an industry. I don't know. It's super interesting. I always wonder like, are SDRs going to be a function in a few years? Like, I feel like they probably will be in some level, but definitely a much smaller team than it was in the past is sort of my, what I think. That's what I think as well. And I think the skill set's changing dramatically. You're going to see smaller SDR teams that take one of two profiles for the next couple of years. Profile one being very ops heavy SDRs that are really good at tooling, email um, reputation, domain warm up, building lists, sending campaigns that way. I think there's going to be a window that is also going to close on the calling side. I think depending on who do you sell to, there's a really good opportunity to get good at cold calling. There's some SDRs that are great at it. For instance, here at Champify, we do a lot of that. And the key is like, how do you make it as easy for those individuals to just spend a lot of time doing that? I think they're facing an uphill battle too, because I think some of the things that Google and you know Yahoo said, I think a lot of the telecom companies are starting to do. You're seeing this on the SMS regulation. I think the same thing's coming on you know robocalling world. And then the role is going to really change. Yeah. No, I think inbound marketing is going to become more and more more important in the world in the future. But even that's going to get harder too with SEO and what Google's doing and AI is taking over. So and AI uh, stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting. But yeah, this is what's fun about tech is you got to you know what worked ten years ago, you got to evolve and figure it out, and you know it definitely makes it harder. But yeah, <laughs> you got to yeah, it's it nothing out. new, yeah. right? Like yeah. channels get old, people find arbitrage in other areas, um, and I think that's what keeps what we do very interesting because you have to be constantly thinking, you have to be comfortable testing different things, knowing when to kill them, where to double down, where you're seeing something. And I think that's what keeps it fun. So you have a product that's very focused on champions, actually, as well. I'm curious, like, how do you approach actually creating champions and how do you sort of support a champion throughout uh, the sales cycle? Great question. So, and again, like if I think about the heap experience, we weren't doing any of this. Like the way you have to sell in 2023 going into 2024 is just a lot different to get people to um, engage and want to commit budget to new spend. Um, The way we do it is figuring out what really matters at the company. I know this isn't novel advice, but there's usually something around, hey, there's SDR attainment, or we're trying to break into a new vertical, or actually we're reducing the team and can't backfill, but our pipeline numbers saying the same. Finding something big at the company level, and then finding the individual that has something to gain from that. And then really, we think about sales here as like champion enablement. What are you doing for that individual using products like Doc to make it extremely easy so that they can go and have those conversations? Every salesperson wants to think, you know, they're the reason why people buy and you're controlling. It's not true. Like you're finding someone that has something to gain in the organization, making it as easy as possible for them to articulate that story. And I think we spend a lot of time not thinking about the ROI or the upside, but also thinking about what's the cost of inaction, really helping them understand if, hey, if if no change is made, whether it's Champify or insert 10 other bets you can make on increasing pipeline, what's going to happen to the business? And then using a business case that we do during the sales process that makes it really clear that, hey, this is a pretty surefire bet if you can execute properly. And we, what we try to do is with that champion, get on the same side of the table as them as quickly as possible saying, hey, based on what our other customers are seeing, these are the types of response rates or ability to go from contact reached out to meeting or here's what they're seeing on the velocity or win rate. Do we think these are realistic? Like, let's really talk about that because... If you're giving someone some bullshit ROI story and they don't believe it, they're not going to be able to articulate that. So we try to really just get on the same table, co-create it as much as possible and think about sales as champion enablement. 
Yeah, we've we've had a huge difference in our sales process recently where we I mean this is not novel either. We probably should be doing this the whole time, but it's like anchoring our, you know, closing the deal to their own timelines, right? It's like, "Hey, you want to launch, you have a bunch of AEs starting in mid-December. In order to support that, you're going to have to close this deal this week because of X, Y, and Z reasons so that we can help you build it out." And it's like immediately they're like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense why I got to close the deal this week." As opposed to like, "Hey, we give you a 20% discount. Why don't you close this week?" You know, like it's it's amazing how much just that simple kind of framing change can have an impact on the yeah, sales. Yeah, we had a, a CRO VP of sales that I really like the way he thinks about it. He goes, look, your job is to help them make an educated decision. And if you help them reframe the way they're thinking about certain things, you've won, right? Like, And I, and I think that's exactly right. I think the time-based urgency discounts are getting less and less popular known that, hey, this is really hard. And until you can get them to realize like for you guys, you know, hey, ramp time is going to be a problem if you don't get started by X date. Or for us, hey, that pipeline gap isn't going to close itself. They have to feel it, right? Like it's really hard for the rep to, to be able to create that urgency if they don't believe it. So you've been a part of two different companies in the very early days, right? Heap and Champify, but in very different seats, right? And so I'm curious, like what's the biggest difference for you being an early employee versus being a founder CEO? Ooh. A couple things. So I think just the founder role overall, it is a little lonely. I've heard people always say that the problems are all in you. The buck stops with you. I think I've been trying to surround myself with people like you to learn from other folks and say, Hey, what are you going through? How are you approaching this? I think what's tricky for early stage founders is understanding where you should be spending your time. Like what are the handful of things that are really going to move the needle? And you know, I like to be liked, so it's easy to say, hey, I can help you and I can do this. But like, you really have to get good at focus and prioritizing. I think also, I have a lot more empathy now for the founders, for the CEOs. Like, I remember giving our leadership team at Heap tons of pressure around, hey, we're not moving fast enough on the product. Or what about the bigger vision? Or how can I compete against this? It's like, it's really hard. Like, some of these are really hard decisions to make. And I think now I'm being in that role, realizing like, give a little more slack to these people. Yeah, I think that really just to recap, it's figuring out where to spend the time, learn from some of the things that I think we did well or poorly in the previous experience and try to avoid mistakes. I think a lot of this is if you can just avoid the big road bumps, you can stay alive a lot longer. Yeah. I personally thought it would be more similar and it definitely lattice early experience has been so helpful because I do have a roadmap of like what it should kind of feel like. And I think I would be going crazy if I didn't have that experience, but the like existential mind games of being a founder, I find to be very different than early employee. Like early employee, I was like, yeah, Jack, you can make that decision. Or if this doesn't work out, I can go get another job. But at doc, it's like, no, this feels like my life and every little decision you know, weighs on me, right? Whether it's financing or product hiring. or whatever it is. And I can't like pass that ball to someone else. Yeah. Hiring, right? Like every miss hiring. So it's, it's so interesting, just like that sort of pressure on you from like a mental. And I, you know, I've learned to just be okay with that, but yeah, it's a, it's very different, uh, mentally. It's a skill set to learn. Like it's, if you see these like super Zen CEOs, like it's extremely impressive, you know, cause you know, they have thousands of decisions on their shoulders that are, they're thinking about nonstop, whether they want to or not. I think it's a skill set like anything else. Yeah. The, the Bob Iger book, I forget the exact story in there, but he's a really good, he talks about how he compartmentalizes things, you know, running Disney and it's like, oh my God, you know, he's like giving presentations when there's all this horrible stuff going on. And it's like, it's amazing how much you have to compartmentalize as, as, a, as a CEO. 
I'd love to end today's conversation with you sharing some advice on like what founders should do when kind of hiring their their first salesperson. I think I saw on LinkedIn you described this role as like a revenue product manager. Can you talk a little bit about like what you kind of meant by this this concept? Yeah, so the per- I started. I worked with someone named Liam who was at MongoDB for a long time at Unusual Ventures, and I, I heard him describe that, and I was like, it's so true. Like you can get a rep who's really good at closing a handful of deals, but that doesn't really help you. Like it does short term, but you're really trying to figure out how do I turn this thing into a machine, right? So I think the first rep, like I was the first rep at Heap. I'm not the best rep. Like if you drop me at a mature company right now, I'm not going to outperform everyone. I think what you're looking for is someone who is really comfortable with ambiguity, really comfortable with trying a bunch of different ideas where you know a high percentage of them aren't going to work. And someone that's really good at like documentation, sharing their learnings, being good at clearly communicating in a non-emotional way to the product team and the leadership team. So it's just skill sets that are more systems thinker, more tinker, you know, someone comfortable with experiments than it is that coin operated rep. There's another stage where you need that rep and they're amazing. But the first one, you know, I think a sales engineer is a great background for that. I think people that have even done some product could be a really good example for that. I think people that have been in the you know solutions type of world can be a good example. Um, I think it's like courage, systems thinking, um, and super clear communication because you're on the front lines. You're hearing so much feedback that you need to make sure is getting to the right people. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation, Todd. It was great to hear your story about Heap and creating Champify. If people want to follow up with you, if people want to check out Champify, where's the best place for them to find you on the internet? LinkedIn's best. I'm just Todd Bustler, B-U-S-L-E-R. Follow me, DM. I think we put out a lot of interesting stuff that'll hopefully change the way you're thinking a little bit. I think you know we're all trying to figure out what is sales going to look like. Um, and the more we can learn from each other, the better. Alex, I appreciate you having me on and a big fan of your product and what it's meant for us. Um, I'd encourage folks to check it out. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.